Hello, my name is Richard Cox. I'm here again with Tim Freak today for the latest installment of our Deep Awake Dialogue series. And today I'm going to be asking Tim about Sufis, the mystics of Islam. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. So you've written a couple of books on Sufism. Who were they? Who are they? Well, they're like everything. There's a wide spectrum. It's not, a, you know, it's them from a distance come up close and they're all very different. But talking in the most general terms, um, the Sufis are the mystical wing of Islam. Islam, like every religious tradition, spans from the kind of fundamentalist, literalist side that we, we're so concerned about in Islam right now, for instance, but exists in all tradi religious traditions, where you're really stuck in the ideas and, and, and have missed the real message, right the way through to a completely different state of consciousness, which is to do with waking up to our central nature, to seeing through to a fundamental oneness, and is characterized by profound, all-embracing love. So one of the ways that we can talk about who the Sufis are, it seems to me, is human beings grow up in different cultures. In those cultures, there are different uh, states of consciousness. This deep awake state for people who've grown up at various points in the Islamic culture created Sufism, just as it did Gnosticism in Christianity or, um, uh, and the, the, the sort of Advaita in Hinduism and so on. So it's, a, it's fundamentally a state of consciousness, and it, but it's expressing itself through Islamic culture. Um, and we have engaged with it now through some magnificent translations of Sufi poetry and that spirit of devotion that you see in Rumi and Hafiz and others. So is the, is the Sufi strain there right from the beginning in Islam? Like you write about the, um, the mystical tradition, the Gnostic tradition being really the beginning of Christianity and then the literalist Catholic uh, aspect is something that is an offshoot of that. Is that the case in Islam or are Sufis something that infused it later on? Well, the Sufis themselves, the Sufi traditions, would go, they are the authentic Islamic tradition, without a doubt. Um, and they would see it going back to Muhammad. Muhammad is a very key figure for them. They, numbers of them see Muhammad as the perfect man who embodies this, much like Jesus is the perfect man for the, for, for, in Christian traditions. He's, he's the embodiment of complete surrender to Allah. Allah, Allah is, 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 is the one and nothing, um, is God. Um, so uh, they would say that. Um, is that historically true? Um, you know, one of the things which we've got, which is different about us to our uh, ancestors and people who have come before us, is that we have a much more refined idea of what we mean by history, mm -hmm. so that we can ask questions they couldn't ask. Um, so we need to ask that. I mean, when I wrote about Islam in The Laughing Jesus, um, we spent, you know, I'm not an expert on this. I haven't spent as much time going in depth as I have in Christianity, um, and I'm not as sure. So... There one, the one narrative which um, interested me was the idea that you had in the beginnings of Islam a Gnostic current that turned into something else very quickly, actually, because of the nature of the history of the time, because there was a lot of empire expansion happening, and it, it changed in its nature. Yeah. Um, that's one narrative, in which case, yes, the Sufis do go right back to the original heart. And the other narrative is that Sufism arose later through connecting in with 
pagan currents that were around in the in in what would now be Turkey and so forth. That you've got um, the the Neoplatonists and Plato himself being read, and a lot of the Sufis of that time are very imbued with this this um, philosophy. One of the roots that people sometimes um, trace the word Sufi to is the word Sophia. Mm -hmm. That that's why they're Sufis. Others contest that and think it's to do with their the wool of their clothes that they would wear very simple clothes. So the answer is I don't think we know, mm -hmm. um, but what it what it claims to represent is a a pure mystical strand which goes through it, and I think that's probably fair to say. Is there a sitting in the centre of the world as they do? Uh, is there an Eastern influence on Sufism too? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's an e e e one of the things which I've loved about studying history over the last 10 or 20 years is changing the mindset that I grew up in, in my culture, which was, you know, the West was isolated from the East and then the Middle East is kind of the buffer. Um, because what we, what we now know is that the influence was going two ways the whole time. So the ancient world wasn't the ancient West. It was in, it was in touch with the East all, the whole time. Of course it was. I mean, the Romans had a massive port in India. You know, it's like we, the more we find out, the more connected it is. And that the reason that these philosophies are similar isn't just because it's something perennial within the human psyche, although I do think it is. It's also because people are talking to each other and learning from each other. So there's a current which connects with India, I think in particular, and what the Sufis represent in the Islamic culture is like the Gnostics in the Christian culture is that state of consciousness, which is eclectic. They're us, but you know, they're us in, but at different times. So not like us too, but they're like, they're us in the sense that they want the good from everywhere. Oh, we'll have that. That's good. We'll have a bit of that. So if the, if, if Plotinus is, is putting out this beautiful philosophy, we'll have it. It doesn't matter that he's, a, you know, a, a Greek philosopher. That's all right. Uh, so, you know, they're 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 pulling it from everywhere, and and that's also why they're so. You get this spirit of look. It doesn't matter whether you're in a temple. It doesn't matter if you're a Hindu. People like Kabir, for instance, who I think of as a, as a Sufi, but he's a Hindu. I mean, he's both. He's what is he? I don't know what he is in India. Now we're going. You know, he's a Muslim Hindu. He's like because as I am because there's no division once you see they're all different cultural ways to, to find the same thing. So Sufism, um, having embraced this eclectic mix, uh, it's, it's, I probably see quotes from Sufi poets on spiritual websites and in books, maybe more than any other tradition. It's something that yeah. really um, people are very attracted to. What's the kind of unique flavor do you think, or did you find with Sufi mysticism in contrast to Christian monasticism or the more Eastern traditions? Okay, so I think the first thing I've got to say, and, and, and it always feels like I'm, you know, this is a bit of a disappointment for people, but it isn't. It's just like important to just get it clear. The, the reason, it's primarily started with Rumi. The reason, one of the reasons that Rumi has made such a big impact is the fantastic work done by Coleman Barks. What you've got with Rumi is this, you know, I did my own versions of Rumi and I studied Rumi, you know, I read you know, huge material, you know, the, 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 um, of his, you know, his collections of his, his, his poetry. And he's, he's an interesting, you know, like all of us, he's a man of his time. So look at certain passages and you have a, medieval cleric 
and it's very alien and it's very Islamic and it's very of that place. But also you have someone who's waking up to something universal and you have moments which are just ecstatic and beautiful and this longing, this, this love affair with the beloved, which is universal and which touches us all. Now what's happened is that, and in my mind, this is just the right thing to do, is that Colin Barks with Rumi, um, Robert Bly with Kabir, uh, Daniel uh, Ladinsky now with Hafiz, have taken these poets and gone, what's the bit that speaks to us now? Let's forget the bit that's gone. We don't need all that. Just bring out those bits, and then let's put them in the modern vernacular so that the Rumi now speaks American. And Rumi's become an American poet. He speaks modern American poetry, which just slices through with that voice of Barks or, or Bly particularly. They've created it, that kind of, yeah. And it just goes, whoa. And, and because of that, it can reach us. So what we're getting is this perennial wisdom, which is to do with ecstatic love and connection with a modern voice. And that's exactly what we need. So, he's, so what we've got is a strange combination. We've got a, we've got a, a joint creative project between American poets and, or when I did it, an Englishman, and, um, and this medieval, Islamic, ecstatic, cleric, stroke poet, stroke philosopher, um, rapper, really. I mean, that, I mean, that's the other element. Of I mean, when, when, he's, when he's, Rumi starts as a, a uh, quite a serious figure, and then under the influence of this, um, his teacher, Shams, who he falls in love with, this wild man arrives in his life. And interestingly for today, really interestingly, Rumi, Jalaluddin Rumi, is, you know, he's brought up a, um, a, a, a Sunni. And Shams comes from the Shi Shiite tradition. Now, these people hate each other. This is like Protestants, Catholics, you know, bang, bang, bang throughout history. We are still going on horribly. And yet that connection of just seeing this, oh, that's the same, reaches across. Mm -hmm. And this wild man arrives in, in, in this rather staid cleric's life and turns it inside out. And Rumi becomes this ecstatic poet. And the whirling and the dervish, the whirling and all of that stuff, which it says comes from Shams. And... Uh, you get this, and what he would do is he would just do it all, extra, uh, uh, you know, he'd just do it off the hoof. He'd just speak this, these rhyming couplets and just bang, 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 which reminds me very much of when you watch really good rappers. Just like you think, wow, how can you do that? How can you just do it like that on the hoof? Um, and that's what he was doing and people were writing it down. So it's got a very modern feel. It, it's something very old and medieval and then it's something very, very modern and that's why it kind of touches us. And, and, and it touches that, longing in the modern soul for, for ecstasy and connection and love. So these poems were rising, <clears throat> excuse me, these poems were arising out of quite an ecstatic state. And then you're saying that the Sufis like Rumi would retract into being men of their age more and then go into ecstasy again. And Yeah, although, I mean, it's all mixed and muddled up because, you know, we speak the language, you and I are speaking the language, literally the language of our time which in a hundred years will just sound different. Like when we switch on now and we hear people talking in the 1950s and they all seem to be speaking like that, you know, and, you know, and, and, and so everyone speaks in the language of their time and it's all mixed and muddled up. And, but what they are doing is they're playing drums and music and he's going for it and they're spinning and he's 
doing his thing and they're becoming intoxicated. But there is, they're Muslims, so presumably they're not actually getting intoxicated because that's forbidden. So, or not on alcohol anyway, they might be getting intoxicated on other things. Um, and they are, they are having ecstatic love fests. I mean, it very much reminds me of what we experience at the Deep Awakening. You know, when I say, look, we need, the soul needs regular excursions into ecstasy. It needs that. That is one of the fundamental things that you find in certain, certain of the, the Sufi traditions, is that. And this kind of, you know, seek bewilderment and, you know, get lost in the, the ecstasy of the mystery and, and then come back. On the one hand. On the other hand, of course, there's also really great philosophers who are Sufis. And they've done, the, they're, 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 they're doing the job of bringing together the hermetic philosophy and Gnosticism and their own is, the Islamic tradition and melding it all together into, you know, profound, uh, and mathematicians too, of course. I mean, very cultured people. So we associate Sufism really for a period from about the 10th to 14th century. And that's when all the Sufis, who people might know their names and hear their poetry, seem to exist. And then it goes a bit quieter. Um, after that, what what goes on with Sufis um, throughout history post that golden age period, or why was there a golden age, and and what do you feel the relevance is of Sufism to Islam and the wider world today? Yes, well, I mean, I think, I think one of the reasons that it, we we look at that as a golden age was golden age for Islam. Um, I mean, Islamic culture was the cutting edge of the planet for a while. Um, and I mean, by the planet, I mean of human consciousness. You know, it really, uh, I mean, you know, things were going obviously in China and elsewhere, but, you know, the, 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 they were a place, they were far more advanced in the West, let's put it like that. You know, we have the, the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, the first universities there we have, and these are all, you know, linked to Sufism. They're linked to that eclectic current that's looking for genuine wisdom anywhere. And you get the rediscovery. I mean, one of the things which is happening is because of the, because of the collapse into Christian literalism in the West, and I write about this in the Jesus Mysteries, mm -hmm. the, the wealth of pagan knowledge, which we lost, astonishing that we lost so much, went East because the people who had it ran away <laughs> from persecution and took it East. So suddenly you have this, I mean, how did an, a nomadic Arab culture turn into the most civilized culture on the planet within a, such a short time? Well, because it just took all of this, this other wisdom. So the Sufis, these are the people who are going, hey, let's read Aristotle, let's read Plato, let's read, what, you know, we've, the, the, the documents that would have been in, a, in, the, in the libraries such as Alexandra were now in libraries in Baghdad. And so they were a huge culture. Within that culture, you're getting the best of everything, aren't you? So you get the ecstatic Sufis and you get the philosophy of the Sufis and you get mathematics and science and all these things, which is what the human spirit does when it, when it has the opportunity and peace. And, and you also get a kind of a, an, a, a because, of, because it's, it's a, it's, um, there's a, a period of... Um, cultural stability you get things like in spain where you get jewish kabbalists meeting christian mystics meeting sufis and they're they're meeting like we are now and connecting openly it's safe to do that so all of these things can flower i mean there's still periods of persecution of course and the sufis have a hard time at various points it's all moving about 
But that's why I think it's a golden age. And it was a golden age for Kabbalah in the same way, all of those currents. Um, and then that collapsed, history moved on. And then we come back here to our modern age, which has got very much the same feeling, but now it's in the West. Now the East is in turmoil, the Middle East is in massive turmoil, as we all know. Uh, so how does that play for us today? Well, it enables us to not ever forget that there's no such thing as Islam, for instance. And, you know, it's so easy. You know, first of all, Islam is split down the middle between these two great warring factions who, you know, would not like to be associated with each other, even though they look the same to us. And then, of course, actually what's going on is different states of consciousness. So within that, what's really of interest is there's a state of consciousness which is narrow and tied in and to do with this is my identity and separateness. And then there's an expansive consciousness which is aware of universality, of our fundamental oneness and of love. And the Sufis represent that, which is why, I mean, there's been programs, the UN and various... Um, people have tried to encourage the Sufis to go back into Afghanistan, for instance. And I know people with various organizations which I'm connected to who are making those connections into those areas with Sufis and trying to, to spread that, that, that approach to Islam. Because what that does is it, it helps Islam reform from the inside. It's not so, you know, it's a, it's a voice from inside. And then for us, it enables us to keep remembering that all people are people and that there are people within those cultures who represent this progressive consciousness. And there's people within those cultures that, that represent the opposite. And it's the same for us. And we need to, to encourage that. So, it, you know, connecting with the spirit of the Sufis and also being able to cut across one of the things which I, I'm a passionate believer that we need to, to see that all culture is our culture. You know, I know that, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, cultural appropriation and that belongs to me and I'm being oppressed. And it feels like I know why you're doing it. And it coming from, you know, I get it, but let's not do it. Let's understand that it's all our culture. I'm a human being, you're a human being. It belongs to all of us. And let's identify at that level. And by owning Sufism and going, no, it's mine. I, I, I love Rumi. He's part of me. He's not just part of them. It, 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 there's a connection then between the cultures, and that's what we really need. We need to keep nurturing that. And we need to, their inspiration too, because a lot of these people who did stand up at the time, years, you know, centuries ago, for universality, they did it at a price. You know, they wasn't always sometimes it, they were doing it in situations which were easy and sometimes they were brutally attacked because they dared to say it doesn't matter what matters is that we we love god and we know the beloved and we bring love into the world there's a love my favorite line from rumi um, lovers have a religion all of their own and that's the religion of love tim thank you very much for that it's great um next time on the dialogue series we're going to speak about psychedelics and <laughs> tim's going to talk us through his experience of that and how it ties into his modern work so tim thanks very much i'll see you then